morning. Hey, one further announcement. We want to give praise to God for the Institute of Marriage in Mason and Kayla's life. So that was this week. Thank you so much for all those who have been participating. We want to lift them up as a part of our body in the church. So congratulations, guys. Okay. Well, today we are in the second part of a series that we continue from last week. And in particular, we were talking last week in Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 37 through 41, about how to grow in the gospel as a church. And as we think about this as a church, the first time in history Los Angeles has lost population increase, we are gaining population increase. But what do we do with those people as they come? What do we do with the people that we're going to have opportunities to share the gospel and grow as the early church did, as Peter showed us last week? Well, today in part two, we're going to learn how to gather in the gospel. Gospel gathering in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. So follow along with me and please read and attend to as it is the God-inspired breath. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all... Those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. In the early 1900s, Jack and Allegra McBurney set out on a mission to devote themselves to God no matter what it would take. They were a product of the Great Depression. They grew up in a time when the sack that you received on Christmas Day was full of oranges, but not material. <laughs> they met in Stanford at an engineering class, and instead of going and pursuing engineering, they figured that they would devote themselves to the Lord's ministry, in particular to Bible ministry. They really saw that there, needed a need, there was a big need for Bible teaching in Newfoundland. So to the Newfoundlers, for seven years they met in houses teaching the Bible, raising up teachers. They devoted themselves so much that after seven years there was already an established healthy church that could stand on its own. And as we've seen in history and history, when you build up leaders, they're able to repeat and continue to multiply. And that's what happened with them. So they actually felt their time was done. They'd handed it off to the leaders. They went back to the United States, but they were not finished devoting themselves to God's ministry. They continued on in that time, and now they became speakers and publishers. And Allegra would support her husband, Jack, in any possible way. Jack began to have cancer, and so he would have remissions, and then he would have times where he would need to be treated. And in between treatments, he would travel to communist countries 
to develop curriculum for school systems that would be subliminal in the messaging for Christ. For he would do that for another 20 years and soon die. And Allegra saw her way to devote herself to the church now was to continue devoting herself to the legacy of her husband. She went on to publish many of his unpublished works. And for the next 20 years, she would continue on that publishing ministry, publishing over 50 books. And at the end of her life in the 90s, she is still alive today and continuing to publish material from her bedside. She never stopped. Jack never stopped. And we should never stop too. We should continue on devoting ourselves to the church because if we've grown in the gospel, we will continue devotion in the gospel as we gather. And whatever that looks like for me or you, it may be different, but it's not a thing that's pertaining to a particular age or a particular demographic or a particular place, or wherever you are, God wants you to devote yourself to the local church. And in our context, that's Santan Bible Church. And the way we do that is in two ways. Luke shares with us today the outflowing of Peter's sermon and how we gather as a church is in two particular ways. Persistent in spiritual ministry, as we'll see from verse 42, and persistent in spiritual mentality, as we'll see in verses 43 through 47. So we'll start with persistent and spiritual ministry in verse 42. This is really the meat of this passage. The rest is going to be a lot of descriptive language in verse 43 through 47. So we're going to spend a little more emphasis and time here because I believe that's Luke's intent for us to do. So we look initially right at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, these 3,120 believers, if we do mathematics and scripture, Acts 1.14 plus Acts 2.37 is 3,120 people in this church. That's a mega church in my mind. (laughs) That's a hard church to gather together. How do you have prayer? How do you know the names of everybody? How do you share meals with one another? That's difficult. Well, Paul, or sorry, Luke shares with us exactly how we do that here as a church. And what we see is that they were devoted. Persistent is the idea. They were persistent to spiritual ministry in four particular areas. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer. Now let's talk for a moment just about what persistence means in the Bible. This word actually has a good context of a child clinging to its mother after birth. And in the same way, us, as new creation in Christ, we are rebirthed into a new spiritual family. You know, fellowship in the non-Christian world was never meant to be as rich as fellowship in the church. That's why you can go to Timbuktu and meet somebody and say, I believe in Christ, and immediately you have a bond with them that you don't have with a non-saved family member. That's the beauty of the gathering. They were like a child clinging to their mother after being reborn. That's what you and I step into the church through our humility as we talked about last week. It's also the idea of a defendant complaining for their client at the dispositions until the very end of the verdict. That's what we do as Christians. We go all the way to the end of our deathbed just like Allegra did. We need to be devoted to the church in and out of every single season. Now, it may flow differently in times. It may look different in times, but the devotion and the heart and the persistence in spiritual ministry never stops. That's always our heartbeat as a Christian. And if we grow further than that, we can't grow in Christ. 
So we're growing, we're persevering, we're making sure that nothing we do is without purpose in our numbers. And that's the first point here, that we're continually devoting ourselves. The idea here is that it actually never gives up. It's an ongoing sense of action. It's the idea of what the apostles did right after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In the upper room, they immediately, after the ascension, continually devoting themselves to prayer. They didn't know what to do. They were waiting. God had told them to stay and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they waited and continually prayed with one another. It's the same idea that we see in Acts chapter 3, 1, that they went to the temple and prayed. They were with action in this. They continued on in ministry. It's the same idea in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, that the leaders of the church said they wanted to devote themselves to the prayer and the public ministry. And that's what we do as Christians. We continually devote ourselves to the four things that follow, particularly to the apostles' teaching. Now, it's important that we talk about here, just for a quick moment, the apostles' teaching is actually something of doctrine. You know, we don't have apostles in the church today, and not everybody was an apostle even when the church was around But we know that apostles were messengers for Christ. They were prototypes for Christ. They were people who went out and performed signs in confirming what the power of God would be for the church. They were the ones who were going to take out languages to other languages that had never met the gospel before. They were prototypes so that Christ could be in their power. They were not anything special in particular, We saw that many of them were actually very unique (laughs) in their personalities. They remind us of me and you sometimes, but they were not a ranked system, okay? And the Christian ministry is never that way, but there are people that go in certain places in the church to do certain ministries, and one of them is teaching. One thing I want to say real quick about apostles is that they were always confirming what God had already said. And the Holy Spirit was with them in confirmation for Christ. So what kind of teachers do we devote ourselves to today if we don't have apostles? Well, we can think of one excellent one, Clay. (laughs) We should be devoting ourselves to our own teachers and to the elders and to many others here that have the gifts that have naturally grown from the gospel into the gathering that have had that gift and fostered it under leadership as teaching has came. You know, God said in John... Chapter 13, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. That was the essence of this, that the early church was going to receive Christ through receiving the teaching. And you and I, in receiving clay and the elders and the other teachers in Bible hour, are receiving their teaching as if we're under Christ's submission. That's how a church gathers first and foremost in spiritual ministry. They gather through the apostles' teaching. Apostles, and like many teachers today, most of the ministry has to do with preaching. That's what we want them to be dedicated to. In Acts 6-4, that was the essence of that, that passage, that they could dedicate themselves to preaching and to prayer. It was also for foundations in the church. They also were the ones who ordained for their teachers in other ministries. They're the ones who set up presbyters or elders And specifically here, one thing we have to know as believers as we continue to gather is that it's not to the apostle or to the teacher, but it's reference to the teaching. That's important. We don't follow a personality. 
And that's going to be important as we grow here, as we have more qualified teachers, that I am no longer uh, noticed more than clay, but that together we are we of Christ, not I of Paul or I of Cephas or I of clay or I of Tim, but we of Christ. That's the essence behind this as we devote ourselves to teachers. The teaching is not an easy thing to do either, and not everybody should be a part of it. In fact, we see that qualified teachers are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. What is a teacher that you and I should devote ourselves to? What does that look like in the Bible? Do we have prefaces for that? We do. If you turn real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it is free, <laughs> you will see that teachers are qualified because they're above reproach. And what that means is they're above reproach in three particular areas. At home, in himself, and with people. In particular, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, at home, they're the husband of one wife. That's what a teacher is that you want to be devoted to. You want to be devoted to a man in verses 4 through 5 in 1 Timothy chapter 3 who manages household well. You also want to be devoted to a man in himself is above reproach. In verse 2, you see that he's temperate. In verse 2, you see that he's prudent. In verse 2, you see that he's respectable. In verse 3, you see that he's not addicted to wine. In verse 3, you see that he's free from the love of money. In verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, you see that he's not a new convert. And he's also above reproach with all people. He's hospitable in verse 2. He's able to teach in verse 2. He's not pugnacious in verse 3. He's gentle in verse 3. He's peaceable in verse 3. And in verse 7, he has a good reputation with the outside. I mean, this is a man's man, spiritually saying. This is the kind of person we devote ourselves in persistence to in spiritual ministry as they teach. There are a few more things on teachers. They're hard workers. They're a hard worker. It says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12 through 16, Paul's talking to Timothy here. He's a young man, and young men need lessons. <laughs> and they need to be told, like verse 13 says in 1 Timothy 4, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. If you jump down to verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. That's what we need to see in teachers. And there's many churches that are filled with men that are not like this. But here we have great examples in our elders, don't we? You know, preaching is hard work. Last week I was exhausted. <laughs> I said, Clay, how do you do this? Two sermons, hour long, with the meat on the bone that you guys want? Man, it's tough work. I mean, an average sermon will take you 15 to 30 hours to prepare I mean, the teaching that goes into it, you're doing historical grammatical hermeneutics. You're looking at the cultural and literary analysis. You're going to go into lexical studies of words. You're going to go into syntactical studies of grammar. You're going to be resolving interpretive conflicts and issues. Your, you know, checks and balances. You're going to be putting it into an ex exegetical outline and then laboring painly through it to make it understandable and homiletics and putting illustrations and applications. Before the end, before you even step up to the pulpit, you're exhausted. But we do that as a labor of love because we know you guys have jobs. We know you guys are out doing your part, and we're doing our part as well. So a devoted church is persistent to teachers that are hard workers. That's important 
They're devoted to the task. They're men who don't waver when society does. Colossians 2.8 is the theme and the mindset of a teacher. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Teachers aren't to stay in elementary school. They're to go on to be PhDs, to be experts in their field. A teacher needs to have a thorough knowledge of the whole counsel of God, and that's who you're to devote yourself to. And don't require anything less. That's, that's what you... Um, need. That's what you deserve as a church whose came has been reborn like a child clinging to its mother, learning how to walk step by step through scripture. That's what teachers do for you as they go in labor teaching. P.T. Forthsith said this. P.T. Forthsith, it's hard to pronounce, <laughs> says of a qualified teacher, the real strength of a church is not in the amount of its work, but the quality of its faith. One man who truly knows his Bible is worth more to the church, church's real strength than a crowd of workers who do not. How beautiful is that? My dad used to say in engineering, you could develop a whole firm based off of the theory of one PhD. And that's what we do here at a church. We gather and devote ourselves to qualified, incredible teachers. And here at Santan, that's why me and Ana Luisa were willing to come here where we don't have family, and I think many of you can resonate with that, to qualified teachers, men who are in one mind of this caliber of teaching in the Word of God, the whole council, as we've seen. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching. That's why we teach everything. We don't skip over it. When I come to a passage in a few moments about signs and wonders, I'm going to discuss it, because it's God's Word, and I don't want to skip over it. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but you can follow up with me afterwards. But we deal with what God says. The second thing we devote ourselves to in persistent ministry is we devote ourselves to fellowship. The idea of koinonia. This was Paul's really, Paul's favorite word, and Luke borrows it here for a second. But koinonia is the idea of close mutual association. Are you close with the people you see in this room? Do you mutually have association with them in different areas? You know, 3,120 people in this early church, I'm sure it was difficult. I'm sure they had to drive to places they didn't want to on a Sunday afternoon. I'm sure they had to devote themselves in certain mornings when they didn't want to, to be mutually close with one another. I'm certain that they had to make sure they were strategic in the way they did it, in their areas and geographics and locations, to have this close koinonia. Koinonia also comes from the word that we get Greek, you know, Greek in the Bible is called Koine Greek. It was the common language of that time. It was the language they would share if you spoke another language. When you went to the market, you spoke Koinonia. You know, English largely is the Koinonia language, the Koine language of modern day. And of that time, the modern day language was Greek. And in that Greek was an idea of fellowship, a close mutual association it's the idea and the same idea in 1 John 1 that this is the kind of fellowship that is rooted in the Father. It's the kind of idea that fellowship with the non-saved is never as rich as we're ever going to have in this church. It's the kind of fellowship that means walking in the light as we saw in 1 John chapter 1. It's the kind of idea that fellowship in this way means remaining in the church as we see in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. They went out from us because they were never really of us. 
You remain in the fellowship as Christians when you grow and then when you come to gather. It's the kind of fellowship that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 9 about generously giving. Read this real quick. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12 through 13. Paul uses this word in a very unique way. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 9. Because the service of this ministry is not only providing for the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing with many thanks to God. Through the evidence of this service, they will glorify God because your obedience to your confession in the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your sharing, that word is koinonia, with them and with everybody. That's what fellowship brings. Are we a sharing church, beloved? Are we a close, mutually associated church? Are we closer with people at church than we are at work or at our country clubs or at our golf gatherings? You know, Justin Martyr in the second century had this kind of fellowship in a time when persecution was just all over the place. And Justin Martyr speaks to the desire of the church in the second century, so that would be like 150 A.D., of this kind of fellowship. He said, all those believers who lived in the cities or the fields gathered, reading from the memoirs of the apostles, urging us to follow these beautiful examples. Immediately after this, we stand as one and raise our prayers, after which bread, wine, and water are offered, and then follows the distribution and partaking of the nourishment. That was a church just 130 years after Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And they were a church that was just following Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. They wanted to grow, but they knew that it meant gathering, even if it was tough in the times of persecution. The third way we persistently pursue ministry is not just to the apostles' teaching or to fellowship, but also to the breaking of the bread. There's some debate about this passage, but I take this to mean communion as an idea of close unified association. We bring communion together in memory of the New Testament version of the Passover and being reminded of, like the Old Testament people did, being delivered out of Egypt. We are reminded that Christ delivered us for the forgiveness of our sins as we were seeing earlier last week. The idea is that we're joined in fellowship for the partaking of the bread. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17 says just this, or 16 through 17 Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one bread. When we partake of communion, we are sharing in our association with what Christ has done for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, this is why we also partake in meals together, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But have you noticed why Cafe 242 is called 242? Acts 2.42. That's why we got that name. That's why we want that to happen over this, so you can continue in the close mutual association that outflows from communion and into fellowship. So please be a part of those moments of fellowship as a church. Fourth, as we are persistent to the ministry, spiritual ministry, we see that we're persistent to prayer. Now I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because we are Overall, in evangelicalism, Big Eva, 
week on prayer. It's always been a weak mention in systematic theology books. It's always been a weak mention in sermons. And today, I hope that it's a strong emphasis. Because we can't be strong unless it's rooted in prayer. That's exactly what the example of the apostles was, as I mentioned earlier on. They devoted themselves to prayer in Acts 1.14 as Christ ascended. They devoted themselves to the house of prayer right after this passage in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. They devoted themselves in Acts chapter 6 to prayer and to the ministry of word because that's what they were called to do. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're told to constantly pray without ceasing. I think J.C. Ryle pictures this really well in his book on practical religion. It's kind of essays he does on different topics of how religion practically works out in the church. And he says this in Practical Religion on page 64. Prayer is just one of those things which is thought a matter of course. And like many matters, of course, it's shamefully neglected. Neglect of care is one great cause of backsliding we may be very sure that men fall in private long before they fall in public. You and I have experienced that, I'm sure. Our prayer life is not entertained. We're not connected to the Holy Spirit and fellowship if we're not praying. We're doing it in our own might. But J.C. Ryle's quote was not to get people to hate themselves. He was commending us through another 12 ways. He said, if that's you then here's 12 things you can be sure of if you go devote yourself to prayer. And it's this. He gives us 12 practical commendations. Have reverence and humility in your prayers. One. Number two, praying spiritually without formality all the time. Don't make it rote memory. Number three, pray regularly. Number four, persevere in prayer. Sometimes you don't pray till you pray. Number five, pray earnestly. If you have to wrestle with God like David, then pray that way. God doesn't want fake prayers. I love David. He says whatever's on his mind. God, why? <laughs> we need prayers like that. Pray with faith, number six. As it says in James 1. Pray boldly, number seven. Number eight, pray fully. Complete the acts, you know, math that it shows us in Matthew chapter 6, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Use those in your prayers. Pray particularly. Keep a list like George Mueller, who had over 30,000 listed and answered prayers. Pray for others with intercession, number 10. Pray thankfully. Number 12, be watchful over your prayers. Don't go prolonged without praying. If you have not devoted yourself to prayer, then our church is without one of its links, one of its body parts. We need your prayers. Don't you guys sense the mutual association of what we have in coming together in Koinonia Fellowship? That if one person's not praying, the church as an entire is hurting. That's what we have to watch for. So, we know as a church that we are to not only grow, but as we gather, we're to be persistent in spiritual ministry. But how now do we do that? What does it look like to be persistent in spiritual mentality as we see 
in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, uh, 43 through 47. The spiritual mentality. What's your mental game like in the church? You know, athletes got to build up their body as much as they build up their mind. And we as the church are doing the same. And this is the kind of fellowship that will happen in the church, the kind of gathering that will happen if we're all on the same mindset. So let's go through a bunch of these descriptive verses as we see how we're to be persistent in fellowship for our spiritual mentality. Beginning with verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The first one in verse 43 that we see is reverence for God's work. That's the first mentality. Do you revere God? In your innermost being, do you have a reverence for God? The idea here is actually phobia. It's where we get the word phobic, fear from. But it really wants us to do a reverential thing with this word. We want to have reverence and awe-struckness from God's work as we grow at Santan Bible Church. Are we all struck as a church at what God's doing here together? Not expecting it, not feeling entitled for it, but earnestly reverent for it. It's the idea of the whole person, every soul in the church is developing a sense of reverence and awe for God. No man left behind. It's the idea of becoming all struck with this new gathering that we've never experienced before. And I think sometimes for those who have grown up in the church, it's been so normal and they come to Christ at an early age. But I want you to be all struck too. Just like somebody like Paul who came to Christ after a later age, was all struck and just left everything, feel as though you're leaving everything in a reverence for God's work as we gather together. It wasn't just a reverence for church in general. It was in particular to what we see in verse 43, the many signs and wonders that were taking place through the apostles. You know, it says through the apostles here for a reason. Because they were proxies of Christ, and as we see in every incident in the book of Acts, signs and wonders were accomplished with the company of the apostles present. They were always present at every single act of uh, sign and wonder. They were proxies for Christ, continuing on for Christ, and what they were doing was they were laying the foundation for the church a one-time laid foundation. They were to be recognized as authority, as 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 tells us. We're to be recipients that recognize that sender. So as we know that the early church was founded and was really completed in that foundation right after John, the apostle John, passed away, we are recognizing its true work today as we gather. It's true teachers. It's true fellowship. It's true communion it's true prayer and we're recognizing that in reverence because God's work is greater than our work it provides proof for everyone that this is done through God there were standards they had to be affirmed in the Old Testament it actually says that people that said they were doing signs and wonders in Deuteronomy 18 through 19 and ever were wrong in what one of their prophecies was was not a true prophet at all it was a message that they were truly sent from God they were authenticated by Jesus himself. And they were always confirmatory in the church. You know, in particular, there were three times where they were confirmatory in the church. They were never regulative. They were confirmatory in the time of Moses, 
In the time of Elijah and Elijah, they were in the confirmatory right here in the apostolic age. But they're not confirmatory now. And they were never exhaustive. They weren't for everybody. As I said before, an apostle was always present with every single sign and wonder in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29 says, all are not apostles, are they? So we know that they were confirming the church and the foundation. They weren't exhaustive. You know, there were times where Paul couldn't heal some people. He couldn't heal Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, 25. So they were awestruck, and as we gather as a church, we need to figure out what are we awestruck in? Well, we're awestruck in salvation. As each person comes into the church, being saved for the forgiveness of their sins, having been pierced by their heart and repented of God, we're awestruck in that. Each and every story of you. We're all struck in the work of the church, how every person does their part. I mean, I'm in here in the church, you can barely get work done because I love the conversations from everybody who's here serving. It's wonderful to see the body working. We're all struck in God's work as a body works together in the church, in spiritual ministry, in spiritual mentality. Next, we're to see that not only are we persistent in spiritual mentality through reverence, but through our existence in commonality, as we see in verse 44. This is really elaborating on its descriptive language, trying to tell you what's going on in the gathering of the church. We're in existence together. It says, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And the interesting idea here is that it's kind of a tough translation it's not really a word like koinonia that talks about this or a commonness. It's a couple words that come together, and really the idea here is an ongoing group existence. It's the idea of we're existing the same, of gathering together. You know, five times in Acts it mentions this word, and each time it's difficult to translate. The only way it can be translated is really by seeing it in context, which is what you see in a church as they come together in existence. It's an existence like none other. Its emphasis is on unity together. And as a church, we need to be unified together. We need to be existing together with one another. We're not existing selfishly anymore, but selflessly. And it's in all things spiritual, particularly. Believers and those who are identified in their belief in baptism were together in the early church. And are we together today as we gather? Do we have the same thoughts? Do we have the same conversations? Do we have the same thrust and vigor for evangelism? Do we have the same mentality for being involved in ministry and serving, for growing in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord? Or are we fighting it the whole way because we weren't pierced to the heart? We weren't repentant. Next, we also see that the spiritual mentality for the church is not only reverent in verse 43 and not only existent in commonality in verse 44 but it's also giving generously in verse 45 giving generously it says in verse 45 that they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need I mean, that's a, a beautiful thing, an illustration <laughs> of this. I mean, this is the kind of church that is willing to do whatever it takes for anyone in the church. 
They're willing to meet together for one another's needs. They're willing to know and have an idea of what's going on in so-and-so's life. You know, the idea here is continuation. This is not something that was in the past and stopped, but this is a continuation, an ongoing aspect of the church, and it's a tiring one, too. It means prayer requests and somebody taking down a list. It means somebody following up with those prayer requests. It means people in Bible studies and fellowship groups letting the elders and leaders know how the church can meet their needs. It means praying over those needs. It means investigating whether we would find a different way to go about it or if there's something that we could do collectively. If somebody else has something that they don't need but somebody else needs it, they share it. It's the idea of a church shifting from materialism to selflessness. selflessness. <laughs> Spiritual gathering is the idea, not selfishness anymore. You're not a lone ranger in ministry or in mentality. They were getting a materialistic detox. And in America in 2021, you and I need a materialistic detox. What do we need versus what do we want? And what can we do in our part in meeting the needs of other brothers and sisters? Are we too busy? Are we too occupied to help others? When's the last time you were able to tangibly, physically help another brother in need? Because if we're spiritually devoted in verse 42, then the physical devotion of mentality will flow out of the church as it gathers in verse 43 through 47. You know, this in, encompassed, as we see in verse 45, property and possessions. Property is typically used in the Bible of fields. And it's interesting that it says that because that's exactly what we see proceed out of the Bible in the next few chapters in one particular story I'm sure you're familiar with, Ananias and Sapphira. They were so caught on this train of selling their property, literally their field, that they wanted to do it. But what did they do? They held some back, right? This is an important lesson for us. We don't meet the needs of others to be known as holier or more spiritual than others. It's not a game of comparison. It's a game of selflessness. So if you turn something in to a selfish act, God does rebuke that. Hopefully not like Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think that's happened in a long time. But we see that this was a natural practice in the early church. Is it a practice here at Santan Bible Church? Selling our property to help others. And do we sell our possessions? This is more of a general term, more of a term of material possessions. It's not as nuanced as field for property, but it's the idea that you're willing to be confiscated of what you have for the sake of others. The same term that's used in Hebrews 10.34, for in fact you shared the sufferings of those in prison and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy because you knew that you certainly had a better lasting possession. You know, our possession is not here. You can't take the hearse to heaven. I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard that before. This teaches us that our emphasis is on spiritual possession, not material. It says later in the verse, and we're sharing with them all as anyone might have need. You know, there are needs in the church. There are needs in this church. There's needs in every church. We don't meet every single need. There are qualifications. We see those qualifications spoken of in the Bible, too. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there are qualifications to meet the needs for widows. There were really practical qualifications, too. There's qualifications to meet the needs for elders, as you see in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. 
there are qualifications. And, you know, as a church, you're going to get a lot of people coming into the church meeting needs. I remember one time there was a person that came in that was asking for groceries. So I, I offered to take them to the grocery store, and they said, no, no, just a gift card. I didn't know what they want. And I remembered one of my elders telling me, that we don't do that. We want to take them and see them physically get it because one time our elder took somebody to the grocery store and he said he needed diapers for Christmas. He started getting filet mignon and cigarettes. <laughs> he was like, the church isn't going to pay for this. We don't meet the needs for that. But also, we understand here that they were meeting the needs of one another. We meet the needs of our church first. And if there's an outflow of our heart, we meet the needs of others. If we're not meeting the needs of each individual church member and they have to be in fellowship and they have to be qualified for that, they have to be above reproach, as it says of widows in 1 Timothy 5, then we're not going to gather right as a church. So the emphasis is no longer as a church on materialism. And I got to tell you, Gilbert, Arizona, we're going to have an issue with this. Many people coming from California, wealthy, to Arizona, and hopefully being pierced by the heart and repentant and coming in the church, we're going to have to address this. I hope we're addressing it with us first. Individually, you in your own heart, addressing how you're at with your material and possessions as you share in as a church. As we continue on in this exposition, we understand that the next emphasis of mentality as we grow and gather in the church is unity in verse 46, the beginning part of verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. You know, the unity of the church begins in the church, in the temple. The early church was still accustomed to going to the temple. <laughs> they were accustomed to Jewish practices, but it was a great place to witness and evangelize too. You know, and they were continuing it on. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, they go there for the times of prayer. There were three prayer times a day. You know, I do like some the rigor of the Jewish culture. I wish we had that same rigor in the church today. Not in a ritualistic sense, but in a spiritual sense. And they did it when? Day by day. They continued on. One day at a time is the slogan for the Christian. We got to pull our bootstraps out, up, up every single morning. Because every day we're tired and exhausted from spiritual mentality and ministry sometimes. And the idea here is that if we abandon each other, we're not encouraging each other. Day by day, they continued with one mind. This is literally the same soul. The same soul. It's like the Spartans, a collective unit, stabbing 300 people one stab at a time. It's the same word used of the angry mob that rushed Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 57. They were so effective in killing and stoning Stephen that they went together as a collective cohort. And as a church, we should be like a mob in Gilbert, Arizona, a cohort for Christ. Unity was an issue in the church of Corinth, as you can see in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 through 17. And Paul had to rebuke them. He literally had to say in verse 10 that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. That's decisions. For I have been informed concerning my brethren by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this, that each of us, you is saying, each of you is saying, I am of Paul. Just think here if we were saying, I am of Clay. 
They were saying, I of Apollos. Think here if you were saying, I of David. I am of Cephas. Think here if you were saying, I of other elders. And I of Christ. Wait, what? I of Christ? I thought that was right. But the emphasis for the church of Corinth was on individuality. Instead, when it should be on we of Christ. That's the whole point as we gather together in one mind to witness and worship as we continue in our progress. And they continued that in breaking of bread from house to house. Now, this is a more general term. This is the idea of actually joining together in meals from house to house. This means if you're in Chandler, you might have to go to Gilbert for a meal. <laughs> this means that you're willing to pair, uh, to pair up and to share duties. This is the idea of a daily provision that was met, and people were sharing that daily provision, that daily proximity of family with one another. It was extensive, too, house to house. They shared in their lives together. They weren't afraid to let people in. That's the kind of church we need, a church with unity in home and at church. We also need, in verse 46, in the end of the verse, joy and humility in our mentality. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Joy and humility is the idea here. Gladness is really great joy and extreme delight. Are we delighting in our fellowship together? Like a transcendent gladness of what has happened as a result of being pierced and being repentant and being forgiven of our sins. It's a humility that flows from that pierced heart. We're a proud nation and we're a proud country. And we need to make sure that the church shows none of that. We're also to see in verse 47, the mentality is comprised of praise. It's the idea of an instrumental participle. The tool that we go about doing this is continuing in praise of God and having favor with all people. That having favor is the next mentality of the church. It's the idea of kindness. You know, it's actually a funny kind of word in Greek because it's a participle of manners. And what that means is your manners need to be kind. <laughs> Continually kind towards one another as we go about doing all this ministry with a mentality together. It's gratitude and generosity towards one another and speeches and conversations and physical uh, meeting the needs of one another. And then in verse, verse 47, the mentality is summed up with continued growth. We continue to grow as a church. Our mental game is to grow because growing means more people saved for the forgiveness of their sins. Persistent gathering logically adds more gospel growth. God will multiply to a church that is persistent. So as we conclude, we have to ask, where am I at this? What is my part in this? There's so many words here from everyone to verse 43 and 45, from all to verse 44, and from the whole church, the complete church in verse 47. You've got to ask yourself a question here. Has the gospel led to us to a belief that in-person gathering in the local church is greater than security in my own individualistic life? Ask yourself, am I involved in the ministry continually with devotion to the ministry and to the mentality? Am I letting the church expose me to the light consistently in fellowship? The world is dark. The church is where we get exposed to teaching and light. And do I have the mental game for Christ? Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time together. We 
love your word, and we love that it teaches us how to go from growing to gathering, persistent in spiritual ministry and persistent in spiritual mentality. I pray that each one of us find where we can do better and find where we can become more unified as a church here at Santan Bible Church. In your name, amen.